Please turn to Isaiah chapter 21. We will start there. This past Wednesday night, I began a sermon that is going to be broken up into three parts. Wednesday night with the first part, this morning, second part, tonight, third part. Each part has its own name. Wednesday night, the title was, The Watchman Must Speak. I'm just going to review briefly leading into today, this morning. And I freely admit that by the time all of this is over, there will be some Christians who are going to be severely challenged by what they hear. But I'm going to present some things to you from Scripture that I am very confident many Christians have never considered, never thought of, and yet there it is, right before us. One of the reasons for this is because of how we have been taught when it comes to things such as prophecy, operating in the prophetic, spiritual warfare, and so on. It's also, um, it also has to do with the way that we have been taught to demonstrate the love of God. And because of wrong teaching in all of these areas, we have ended up taking an inappropriate, incorrect approach to how do we deal with stuff in the world. So those of you that are going to be hearing this and wondering, well, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like the thing, I mean, that just doesn't sound, I mean, I'm not so sure about that. If you're challenged by it, then I suggest go back and, and again, search the Scriptures to see if these things be so. Now, Wednesday night, one of the things that we identified in Scripture is that there is a remnant within the body of Christ. God identified there was a remnant in the nation of Israel, and, and I'm, I'm just going to give you another heads up here. If you want to understand the, um, how God deals with the body of Christ, you need to read how God dealt with the nation of Israel. Because a lot of Christians have this idea that now we're born again, we're no longer under the law. Well, I understand that. I mean, Scripture bears that out. But we're, but we're not no longer under judgment. This is where people mess up. All that stuff in the Old Testament, well, thank God those days are over. Jesus has come. The blood has been shed. And on, you know how it goes. And so we think that, well, not all Christians, I know, but, but there's this idea that all of the accountability in the Old Testament no longer applies today. But yet, if you read the New Testament as though you've never read it before, what you're going to find is that the accountability now is greater than what it was under the law. All because we're born again. And if you think that there is no such thing as judgment that can take place here in this world concerning Christians, you're desperately wrong. Real briefly, um, we'll get here to Isaiah in just a moment, but think about, if you, you don't, don't turn to this, check it out later. In Deuteronomy, God is speaking through Moses to Israel. And one of the things that he says is, if you'll do, I'm paraphrasing, but if you'll do what I say, 
then all these blessings are yours. All these blessings are waiting. Because see, God spoke those blessings. And the moment that He spoke those blessings, those blessings, now you're going to have to use your imagination here, those blessings came into existence within the atmosphere of the world. Okay, now I know that sounds real ethereal, but I'm trying to paint an image here that they're out there. They're out there. It's just like when you go to the grocery store, all the shelves are stocked. And so now it's up to you to go through and, and pick what you want. All right, all the shelves are stocked with these blessings. And God said, if you do what I say, then what happens is, the blessings, I don't have to repeat these blessings. The blessings are already released because I've said it. So if you do what I say to do, if you're obedient to me, then these blessings will then be attracted to you like iron to a magnet. Because I, God, have established this spiritual principle. It's a law. The blessings are out there. You obey, the blessings manifest. It's very simple. That truth is still alive today. It did not die or pass away when Jesus came and completed His work here on earth. But the flip side to that is also true. When God said, if you disobey, then all these curses will come upon you. And when we, when we read that, we, we think, I get the blessings, but I don't have to worry about the curses. In other words, I can be disobedient if I want, and nothing's going to happen to me. How foolish. Because if you read in the New Testament, you're going to see, yeah, you've got, you better do it. You better obey, because if you don't, bad stuff will happen. And some people will say, ah, but Brother Martin, I think you don't know Scripture, because the Bible says that we've been delivered from the curse of the law. What was the curse of the law? Well, I don't know, but I've been delivered from it. So, you don't know what you've been delivered from. Come on. Okay, part of that curse, and I'm not going to teach on that today, Part of that curse had to do with our spiritual condition. See, the law gave a revelation of our spiritual condition. Well, see, now that I'm born again, that spiritual condition has been dealt with. But when it comes to the judgment, the punishment, the bad things that can happen for disobedience, it's still out there. And so if you start disobeying, then guess what? Bad stuff can happen to you. Because God spoke it. If you go back and you read there um, in Deuteronomy where he talks about the blessings and the curses, if you read it very, very closely, you're going to notice that at times it's almost like he's not even talking about the law given to the Israelites. It's almost like he's speaking in general terms. Now, I'm saying all that to say this. If you dance to the music, you got to pay the piper. Do you understand what I mean by that? If you disobey, 
Stuff's going to happen right now. God has established us here in this world as believers. Number one, we are a remnant of world population. The body of Christ is a remnant of world population. But within the body of Christ, there is a remnant of believers who are grabbing a hold of what God has said and marching forward to do what God has said. Now, I'm not talking about where God says, uh, or I'm not talking exclusively about where God said, you know, now, now don't you be committing adultery and don't you be doing this and don't you be doing that. I'm talking about Christians who are complying with all of that, but they're taking it a step further and they're, they're recognizing that, okay, God says be holy because I'm holy. All right, that, that's gotta be me. That's gotta be me. I, I have to be holy because God is holy. And then where God says, you know, you gotta pray in the spirit. And when God says you gotta, you know, sow the word and so forth, okay, well that's going to be me. All those things that he talks about, that's going to be me. Because God talks about from faith to faith, and he talks about from glory to glory. I, I want to make that progress. I want to go from one level of faith to a greater level to a greater level to a greater level. I want to go from one level of glory to another level to another level. I want to get to the place to where I fully conform to the image of the glory of Christ. Okay, that's a remnant. That's not the whole body of Christ. You and I both know that. See, for one thing, if you've got all the members of the body of Christ who do not believe in the infilling of the Holy Spirit or the gifts of the Spirit, okay, if you don't believe any of that, well, guess what? There's only so far that you're going to go in the conforming to the image of that glory. It doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation or that you're a sinner. It's just that, you know, you have to take the completeness of what is revealed here in Scripture, apply it to your life and do it, or you cannot become what God says this is your potential. So here we are. We're, we call ourselves in this church a part of the remnant. The truth of the matter is, we are a part of the remnant, but we're learning more about what it means to be a part of the remnant. And as we learn more, we're applying more, and we're, we're making advancements. What's kind of interesting is we have matured spiritually to a point to where, quite frankly, in a general term here for us, we really don't know how far we have matured spiritually. And we won't know it. It won't really hit us unless we happen to get in a group setting with a bunch of other Christians who aren't in sin, but they're not pressing in the same way. Then you begin to realize, you know, you kind of think, well, what's wrong here? <laughs> I mean, they're not in sin, but something's not right. Well, it's because not all Christians are pressing in. Now, in Isaiah 21, it says here in, um, well, it starts off and it talks about in verse 2, A grievous vision is declared unto me, the treacherous dealer dealeth treacherously, the spoiler spoileth, go up, O Elam, besiege, O media, all the sighing thereof have I made to cease. Now, 
again, to kind of make reference, uh, to review a little bit here from Wednesday night, part of this message has to do with what's happening in this nation politically. But the principle I'm sharing is true regardless of what country you're in, regardless of what is happening. Let me put it another way. As much as evil men have reared their heads here over the last year, you're always going to have evil men. That's just the way it is. You're always going to have evil people in this world. And not all of them are filled with demons, contrary to what a lot of Christians want to believe. A lot of people, okay, here's one for you. Cain, when he killed Abel, was he demon-possessed? No, he was not. He was Cain-possessed. In other words, he was full of pride. God, you're going to do it my way or else. God just kind of, no, (laughs) I'm God. And if you do what's right, everything will be okay. But if you don't, sin's crouching and waiting. In other words, until you start doing wrong, there is a level of protection for you. All right, now, here we see Isaiah 21. You know, the treacherous dealer dealeth treacherously. If you can't see that that's happening in our country right now, there's some kind of blindness going on in your life. And you need to understand, you've got, not only is the treacherous dealer dealing treacherously, but you have a lot of people supporting the treacherous dealer in the body of Christ. Well, in verse 6, For thus has the Lord said unto me, Go set a watchman, let him declare what he seeth. And he saw a chariot with a couple of horsemen, a chariot of asses and a chariot of camels, and he hearkened diligently with much need, much heed, and he cried, A lion, my Lord, I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime, and I am set in my ward whole nights. And behold, here cometh the chariot of men with a couple of horsemen. And he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and all the graven images of her gods he hath broken unto the ground. So God says, put a watchman in place. And then the watchman has the responsibility to open his mouth and speak. And it's not until the watchman speaks that we see God responding and saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. In other words, the watchman has to speak first before God begins to move. And this is so incredibly powerful, and yet too many Christians don't seem to understand that. As believers, we have a responsibility to speak the Word and the will of God. But I want to focus on the aspect of speaking the Word of God. Because God made a statement, and I didn't write down the chapter and verse for some of these things I'll make reference to, but God made a statement. He said, when my Word goes forth from my mouth, it will not return void. It will accomplish what I set it forth to accomplish. Now, what that means is, and again, use your imagination, 
God spoke his word. Now, we have the Bible in our hands. Here's the spoken word put in print form. But when he spoke it, he released it, and it's still here. It's still active. It's still alive. It has not diminished in any way, shape, or form. So God spoke his word, and he said it won't return void. But what's interesting is that the watchman has to take the word of God and declare the word of God, and then God moves according to his word that is spoken by the watchman. Now, some people might say, well, God can do whatever he wants. Yes, he can. But no, he can't. Well, what do you mean? He's God. All right. How many people does God want to spend eternity in a lake of fire? Like zero. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have this incredible, everlasting, eternal, glorious, wonderful, born-again life. So it's not God's will for people to spend eternity in a lake of fire. Well, if that's not his will, then how come everybody's not born again? Because you have to take the word of God concerning salvation and how to be born again, and you have to have it in you, then you declare it, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. See that? So therefore, when God, this goes all the way back to Genesis, when God said, let's make man in our image and our likeness. And give him dominion. And so now here we are. We are um, here on earth in this world. In creation, we are the, say it like this, we're the dominion factor in creation. And God wants to work with us, through us, to accomplish his will. And so here we are as Christians... With God's life and nature on the inside, we have the ability to work with Him in a way that nobody in the Old Testament could. So we speak His Word, and it gives Him a path to work on. If we speak our own Word, if we speak our own opinion, if we, if we speak what we think it ought to be, God doesn't work with that. If it's not His Word, He's not going to work with it. He doesn't confirm people. He confirms His Word. Now, this whole aspect of prophecy and prophesying, there's, there's too much in the body of Christ about prophesying and telling future events. And there's been so much. Every, every presidential election, prophets come out of the woodwork. Everybody's prophesying this, prophesying that. God showed me, God showed me, God showed me. There was one, I will not be giving this name, but there was one particular extremely well-known minister who publicly, you can find this, it's on the internet, who publicly stated, I mean, it's a, it's a recording, publicly stated, God showed me that President Trump is going to be reelected. He, you know, revealed it to me. He showed it to me, you know. And so he, God told me, and President Trump's going to be elected. So, well, then guess what? The election didn't go 
the way a lot of people thought. Now, I, as, as I minister this today, it's January 3rd, January 6th has not yet taken place. Okay? January 6th when the Congress and all gets together to accept or reject the results of the Electoral College and what have you. All right? So now, on November 3rd, right? That, that was the day that we voted. I get 3rd, 4th, something. Anyway, November 3rd. Okay, when that voting was done and the results came out being not for Donald Trump, and people began talking about, well, the election was rigged and so on and so forth. Well, anyway, this one particular minister, he came out publicly and said that President Trump should just accept defeat and just stop all this, you know, pressing in and trying to pursue after the fraudulent voting and blah, blah. It's like, well, no, we just hold, hold, hold on here, Mr. Preacher Man. You said God showed you. You said publicly God showed you that Donald Trump was going to win re-election. Now you're telling Donald Trump he needs to just concede and move on in life and so forth. What in the blank is wrong with you? Now I'm telling you, I'm not trying to be cruel, but I'm telling you right now, that minister has lost all credibility with me. Now, if you want to know who it is, I'll tell you after this message. When we're not going public, because I don't want to, this message is going to stir up enough. I have no problem telling you because it's out there. And you can go watch it and you can see it. And I'm thinking, who on God's green earth, what, what in the world? First off, you say, God showed me. If God truly showed you, then the one thing you do is you say, fight, fight, fight. Amen. Do not give up. So, something weird there. But anyway, this whole thing about the prophecy and prophesying. Prophecy is not simply a matter of declaring future events. Prophecy is declaring the uncompromised Word of God, and it can include the foretelling of future events. Both of these can be seen throughout the Old Testament as types and shadows and examples for us today. But along with that, very often... The hearers of the prophetic voice became very angry at what they heard. And when I say the hearers of the prophetic voice, I'm talking about Jews who heard the prophets of God and yet became very angry because, well, it doesn't go along with what we want to believe. And when many of those prophets stood up, and I'll, say, I'll go ahead and say this now, if you go through the Old Testament, what you're going to see is, God telling a prophetic voice, speak this. Tell the people this. Speak this, O man of God. You know, however it's in, you know, written in scripture. So God says, you tell them this. You, you say this. And so then the prophetic voice would stand up and say, okay. And, you know, deliver it. Well, it wasn't that God was saying anything bad. It's coming from God. We just got through singing, you know, he's good, he's good. <laughs> whoa, whoa, he's good. <laughs> but the people had come to a point in their lives, they didn't want to hear it. It doesn't go along with what we want to believe, in spite of the fact that what we want to believe is contrary to your word, God. It's what we want to believe. And so a lot of times these prophets, and then when you get into the New Testament, you begin to read how that a lot of the prophets were killed. And many of the prophets that were killed, 
they are not named in the Old Testament. I mean, Jezebel, she killed a bunch of prophets. Killed them. That's why Obadiah was hiding some in caves. That's why God told Elijah, hey, I've reserved 7,000 unto myself that haven't bowed the knee to Baal or, you know, kissed his hand. And so therefore, this whole thing of prophecy, as believers, every single Christian is called to operate in the prophetic relative to the declaration of the Word of God. Not all Christians are going to be used by God in the prophetic to foretell future events. Now, turn over to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And in Luke chapter 4, Jesus has been baptized in water. He comes out of the water. He gets filled with the Holy Spirit. He goes into the wilderness, tempted by the devil. And then we pick it up in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. And he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country." And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when a great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian." And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with joy unspeakable. And <laughs> no, it says, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. Well, how much wrath? <laughs> Verse 29, and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him under the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. What does that mean? They were going to stone him. That's what you did. You took somebody, you grabbed them, and you dragged them against their will, and you threw them down a hill, and the impact of hitting the bottom uh, where they landed would kind of stun them, knock the breath out of them. And while they were trying to recover, then you start throwing rocks down to kill them. That's what they're trying to do to him. Well, it says here in verse 30, but he passing through the midst of them went his way. That's a miracle. (laughs) That's a miracle. Let's back up. Look at this. In verse 16, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Jesus was not raised in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth where he had been brought up. Do you realize what that means? That means that from 
toddlerhood up, he was raised in Nazareth. People knew him. They knew who he was. They watched him grow up. They watched, they watched little Jesus play with all their children and they watched him, you know, grow into a teenage boy. They heard his voice change from the little squeaky boy voice to a, you know, a, an adolescent voice, an adult voice and so forth. The point I'm making is that he was not a stranger to these people. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. This was his custom. See this? That means he attended church every time the doors were opened. He was there. But, it says he stood up for to read. In other words, this is not the first time they have allowed him to read in church. And it was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. We do not know, if you Greek this out, you still don't know 100% if he asked for the book of Isaiah or if it was just given to him. One way or another, he ended up at the book of Isaiah. And he, what this means is, they trusted him. It says earlier he gave the book back to the minister. That's talking about what we would say, like the like the pastor or something like that. In other words, here is a person who has authority who recognizes Jesus and gives him the book of Isaiah. Maybe Jesus asked for it. Regardless, he gives it to him. What I'm saying is this. There was an element of trust because this is Jesus' custom. It wasn't somebody new that just walked in and it's like, well, who are you? I mean, are you Jew or Gentile? It, this was his custom. And so they gave him the book and he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then verse 20, notice it says, He closed the book, he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And all the eyes of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. Now where it says that he sat down, it doesn't mean he stood up, read, went back to the pew. What it means is, he stood up, he read, and then he sat down in the rabbi's seat. There was a special seat for the rabbi, whoever was going to be teaching that day in the synagogue, there was a special seat for that individual to sit in. So when it says that he sat down and all the eyes were fixed upon him, what that means is he has read the scripture. Now he has sat down and they're waiting for him to begin teaching them. Well, he read the, he turned to Isaiah 61 where it talks about the spirit of the Lord is upon me and so forth. He closed the, the, the book there and he begins to speak. Now they're listening to him and he says in verse 21, look at this. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. That wasn't from Isaiah. (laughs) That wasn't written. And in verse 22, it says, All bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Where where they say, This makes it sound like everybody there was really happy to hear all this. Because that word gracious is used. No, that's not exactly what was going on. 
because what he's reading is a direct reference to the Messiah. And when he says this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears, he was declaring himself to be Christ the Messiah. And so where it says, all bear him witness and wondered, and they said, is not this Joseph's son? Okay, verse 22, that's a very simple way of explaining to us what was going on. So he stands up and he reads, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he's anointed me to do all these things. Hands the book back to the minister. They don't know what's coming next. He sits down in the seat of authority and he says, this day is this scripture fulfilled right before your eyes. So the people hear this and there's going to be this combination of stunned silence and murmuring. People would have been looking at each other and saying, what? What did he just say? Did he just say that this day is fulfilled? Is he calling himself the Messiah? What? Isn't this Joseph's son? Do you follow what I'm saying? That's what was going on. That was all the whole... And I'll guarantee you, some of them were looking at the minister like, are you going to do anything about this? What's going on here? Well, then Jesus, in verse 23, he says, you will say unto me this proverb, physician, heal thyself, whatsoever we've heard done in Capernaum, do here in thy country. Verily, verily, I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country, but I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens was shut up three and a half years, or three and a half, three years and six months, and a great famine throughout all the land, but unto none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Sarepta, the city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. This was not a Jewish woman. And then he says, and there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. Not Naaman the Jew. Naaman the Syrian. Now, they understood this more than we do. Because what he was saying is this. All of you Jews are going to reject the Messiah. And salvation is going to be delivered to the Gentiles. That's why they got so fired up mad wanted to kill him. Blasphemy! Blasphemy! Kill him! And they tried. They absolutely tried. But he miraculously got away. Here's the problem. If you go back and you start reading through, well, really, just start reading the Old Testament. Every now and then, you're going to see God prophesying that, and I'm going to paraphrase, a people who have never known me are going to know me. Well, ask the Gentiles. The Jews knew God. They had the law. And God is saying, a people who've never known me are going to know me. He had been prophesying for centuries that the Gentiles were going to be saved. Well, that's not the way the Jewish people had been taught, even though that's what's recorded in Scripture. They had been taught, we have the Scriptures, we're it. The Gentile, in fact, there was a saying back in those days that the Gentiles are going to be the fuel for the fires of hell. So, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> for him to sit there in the synagogue and say, you're going to reject, number one, I'm the Messiah, 
Number two, the Jews are going to reject me. And number three, the Gentiles are going to be saved. This went totally against what they have been taught their whole lives. Now, what was happening here? He was prophesying to the people. Because when he stood up and he read that passage of Scripture, and then he said, this day is fulfilled, he was speaking prophetically to those people about what was happening at that moment. Scripture is being fulfilled. Not just what I've just read to you, but every prophecy about the Messiah right now. Here it goes. This is it. It's fulfilled in your eyes, in your ears, before you. Right here, right now. This is it. It begins. And then he went on and talked about the Gentiles. Again, he's prophesying. And how's he doing this? Okay. In verses 24, 25, 26, and 27, he is not specifically quoting Scripture, but he is using Scripture to prophesy a truth to the people. Do you understand that? Because if you go back and read about Elijah, and you read about Elisha, you're going to read word for word in Scripture. It's presented differently than what is recorded here. But when Jesus speaks this, He is speaking prophetically to the people a spiritual truth that is going to be confirmed right before their very eyes. How that not only are are the Gentiles... I've come to do all this. Not only are the Jews going to reject me, the Gentiles are going to be saved, so on and so forth. Now, the point I'm getting at is this. When it comes to Christians speaking prophetically, very often what you speak... I mean, it's got to line up with the Word of God, okay? But very often what you speak is going to be rejected by the people who hear it. Even if it doesn't matter, you're speaking the truth. Now, the point I'm getting at is you can't speak truth if you don't know truth. This is why we're supposed to be meditating in Scripture. This is why we're supposed to be reading the Word, to get it in us. Now, taking this and going forward, when we as Christians begin to declare the Word of God, that is prophetic speaking. When we begin to, for example, when you, uh, you know, by Jesus' stripes, I was healed. You know, God sent His Word and healed me and delivered me from all destructions. That is prophetic declaration. And what you need to be doing is speaking it to your body. Body, do you hear me? And you think, well, that sounds silly. All right, you know, call it silly if you want. But remember, it's your body that isn't lined up with the Word of God. Prophesy to your body the healing that Jesus paid for. Do you hear me? You know, your elbow's hurting. Elbow, God sent His Word and healed you and delivered you from all form of destruction. By Jesus' stripes, elbow, you were healed. That's a prophetic declaration. But a lot of Christians dismiss it and think it sounds stupid and think it sounds foolish. But it's the Word of God. And God says, my Word won't return void. So when I take His Word and I make it my Word and I declare it, according to the pattern seen in Scripture, then I can expect results. That's part of what faith is all about. But a lot of people don't understand this. All right, now we take it a step further here. 
And there's such a thing as what I'm calling prophetic warfare. Prophetic warfare. Which is declaring God's truth against devils and those who oppose truth. Declaring God's word against devils and people who oppose truth. Now turn to Luke. Well, you're here in Luke. Here's an example. An example to get things going. In Luke chapter 4, the devil tells Jesus, you know, turn the stones into bread. And Jesus, verse 4, Jesus answered him saying, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And then the devil says, okay, I'm going to show you all the kingdoms of the world. If you worship me, it'll all be yours. Verse 8, Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. And then uh, the devil, he says, okay, Jesus, jump off the pinnacle of the temple and, and uh, the angels will take care of you. They'll save you. And Jesus says in verse 12, it is said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Do you see what's happening here? This is warfare. This is spiritual warfare. The word delivered to Jesus was, do this, it's okay. It's acceptable. And Jesus turns right around and he doesn't say, well, I don't think so. I mean, I'm not really sure I should be doing something like that. That doesn't sound right to me. No, Jesus turns right around and He draws the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And He says, this is spiritual warfare right here. This is an example of it. And all too, time, all too many times Christians, when they're under attack of any kind, their response is, pray for me. Pray for me. Well, uh, forewarning. If you come to me and you say, pray for me, don't be shocked if I turn it right back around and ask you, what have you spoken out of the Word of God over this situation? What have you prophetically declared over this? And if you come back to me and say, well, I just, I, okay, I'm going to know right then. You haven't. And my answer is going to be, well, I can pray for you, but you know what? You need to prophesy to this situation. And if you don't, you know what you're asking me to do? You're asking me to take a level of authority in your life that I really am not supposed to have. All right, now, moving forward. We see this is an example of warfare. And I'm calling it we call it spiritual warfare, but I'm also calling it prophetic warfare. One word coming at Jesus, Jesus turns around with the Word of God, prophetically declaring the truth. See this? Now turn over to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Now here in 1 John chapter 2, take a look at verse 15. Love not the world. Now, this is written to Christians. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. See that? If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So when you have these people out here protesting with all of these groups that want to tear down the very fabric and the foundation of righteousness in this country... When Christians align themselves with that, right here, 
They are, verse 15, they're loving the world and the love of the Father is not in them. You see this? You better see this. It is that serious. This is how God sees it. And people like that, believers now, they're searing their conscience and they're on a path to hell. Now look over in Philippians chapter 3. See, we've been so blinded by, uh, how can I, what do I say here? This uh, false Christian pacifism, false Christian love, that we misinterpret what we're supposed to be doing here in the world. You're going to be seeing this more here in just a few minutes. In Philippians chapter 3, look here, verse 17. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as you have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. They love the world, and they do not love the Father. They do not love Jesus. Now, this he's talking here about Christians. And he says, look at this. He calls them, they're the enemies of Christ, whose end is destruction. See that? Their end, it, what, what does that mean, their end is destruction? Eternal separation from God. You can't play games with this stuff. And it really, I, I do not allow it, but the frustration, the anger, the aggravation really knocks on the door of my emotions when I start hearing Christians line up with this stuff in the world. And it's like, do you not get it? Do you not get it? You are aligning yourself with Satan's goals. All right, now look over in James chapter 4. And here in James chapter 4, take a look at verse 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. See that? There are too many Christians wanting to stand up more for social justice than revival. And you're on the wrong path. You are clueless. You are blinded by the stupidity in this world. And you're blinded by a lot of the people that call themselves preachers and Christians and so forth who align themselves with the world more than the Word of God. This is what I'm talking about, the remnant. Okay, the remnant is just a portion of the body of Christ. It's pressing in the way that we should. Now, what I'm seeing here, what I'm showing you here in 1 John Philippians and James is that there are people in the world, including Christians, who are our enemies. Now that we talk about, well, no, the enemy is not people. The enemy is the devil. I get that 100% about the enemy being the devil. But what have we just read? There are enemies of the cross and there are enemies of God. Well, guess what? If they're enemies of the cross of Christ and they're enemies of God, are they not also our enemies? And this right here is where Christians miss it so much. Well, we've got to love the people. We've got to hate the devil. Okay. Love does not enable rebellion. Love confronts it. And when you have people out there, both born again and lost, 
who are the enemies of Christ, the enemies of the cross, the enemies of God, then guys, guess what? They are our enemies. And you need to understand that unless they have a change of heart, they will go to their grave fighting against us to achieve the goals of Satan himself. But that's not what they're going to tell you. They're going to tell you we're trying to create a more balanced social environment. We're trying to make things good for everybody. Then why do things keep getting worse the more we let you do your thing? All right, now look over in Matthew chapter 5. See, the whole aspect of prophetic warfare, when it involves people who oppose truth and righteousness, it, it may at times seem extremely contradictory to God's instruction that we walk in love. Now look here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Jesus says, you have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy enemy and hate, or thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Okay, well then I, I think we should do that. I mean, Jesus did say do it, right? But now look over in John chapter 8. We'll come back to Matthew here in just a moment. John chapter 8. And in John chapter 8, look at verse 44. Listen, listen to Jesus as He blesses some people. <laughs> ye are of your father the devil, the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. <laughs> Wait a minute, you're of your father the devil? And the lust of your father you will do? What kind of a blessing is that? Well, let's go on over to Matthew 23. Let's, let's, let's feel the love. Matthew 23, verse 13. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering in to go, that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell, than yourselves. Verse 28. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Verse 33. Ye serpents, ye generations of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you, you uh, prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the blood, all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, 
whom you slew between the temple and the altar. That's right, Jesus. You bless them. You love them, Jesus. Doesn't it sound like he's contradicting his own instruction? Well, somebody out there like, what's going on? Okay, these are the words of Jesus. Love your enemies, bless them. And then he turns around and says, you're of your father, the devil. How are you going to escape? You're headed for for the damnation of hell. (laughs) Excuse me? Okay, this is prophetic warfare. This is when you're declaring the word of God against those who are the enemies of God. Why is that? Well, the goal is hopefully to get them to change. You know, um, the story of the prodigal son is in Luke chapter 15. And it talks about, well, we know the story. But anyway, when that prodigal son finally comes home, the dad, you know, runs out, gives him a big old hug. and says, put the robe on him and, and put the ring on his finger and, and go kill the fatted calf and let's have a party. He's home. Now, my question would be, in that story, what do you think was the greatest way that that father blessed the prodigal son? Well, by, by hugging him and loving on him and, and you know, giving him the robe and the ring and the, and the fatty calf party and all that. No. The best way that he blessed him was staying home and letting that kid go through what all that junk he went through until finally, Luke fifteen seventeen he came to himself and realized, I need to go back to the Father. That was the best blessing, that dad. But see, as Christians, what we want to do, we want to love on everybody. And no matter what they do, we want to go up and embrace, and we want to make sure everything's okay, and we, we want to look. We just need to find, you know, a, a neutral ground. We just need to find a way to get along. And Satan is in the background saying, Yeah, you go, girl. You go, you go boy. That's what he's after. Because the more we compromise, the more he gains ground. Look over in Acts chapter 5. Let's see some more love and blessing. In Acts chapter 5, here it is, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias, you know, confronted by Peter, he drops over dead, they carry him out, they bury him. Ananias' wife shows up. And Peter says, well, is this how much money you got? She goes, oh yeah, that's right. And Peter says, verse 9. Then said Peter unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Holy Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet, yielded up the ghost, and the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. Where's the love? Now, come on. What we would do today, or what would seem to be common today, is, now, now sister, you do know that's not what really happened. Now, sister, you know, you made a commitment to the Lord and you need to carry it out. Now, now, sister, your husband already dropped dead. <laughs> Don't you think you should repent? That's how things are done today. There's no prophetic confrontation. It doesn't happen. And so we end up allowing a lot of Sapphiras to continue living in non-repentance. Because they've never been confronted. Now, I'm not saying that when we, the prophetic warfare, people are going to drop dead. But what I'm doing is I'm giving you an example is that 
the lovey-dovey stuff that we've heard for so many years, it's not going to cut it in prophetic warfare. It'll never work. And look at Acts chapter 7. Peter, or not Peter, but Stephen, gets arrested. They put him on trial. After all these signs, wonders, and miracles that he had been doing. So he begins preaching this message to them, reminding them of who they are, who Christ is, and so forth. And then in verse 51, <laughs> Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. Well, look, dude, you're on trial. This isn't going good for you. You shouldn't be saying things like that. You should be saying, now fellas, don't you know that God really loves you? Don't you know that God, He's done His best for you? That's the way things go today too often in the body of Christ. But He turns around and He declares the word prophetically to them. Well, they didn't like it. And instead of repenting, when confronted with truth, they killed him. Kill the messenger. Well, you, you can do that, but you're not going to destroy the message. Look over in Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. And in verse 5. And when Silas and Timothy were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. That wasn't very nice. You're supposed to be preaching the love of God. Instead, your blood be upon you. <laughs> Look at this. Your blood be upon your own heads. Now, we're not going to go to it, but he's actually referencing Scripture when he says that. It's prophetic warfare. He's not getting even for himself. He's declaring the word of God unto them. Look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You know, Paul says, you guys got a real problem in your church because you've got this man who's, who's um, having a, a very inappropriate relationship with his father's wife. And in verse 3, he says, For verily as absent in body, but present in spirit, he says, I've judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What kind of love? Why didn't, why didn't he say, you need to bring this guy in for counseling? And, and somebody could say, well, yeah, but I mean, this guy, he wasn't attacking Paul. No, but what he was doing was attacking the integrity of the Word of God. Because if you read this whole passage, you see that the people there at that church, he says, you haven't warned over this. In other words, they were starting, now listen, to accommodate a social agenda of immorality that God forbids. And they were starting to come into agreement with it. And Paul knew... You got, you know, to, to quote from Andy Griffith, you got to nip it in the bud. <laughs> 45. Nip it, nip it in the bud. That's what, <laughs> that's what he's talking about here. Because this thing's going to spread if you don't. This is warfare. 
This is warfare against not just Satan, but those who are the enemies of, of the cross, the enemies of Christ. Now, here's what's interesting. In not one of these situations that we have read, not one, did anybody try to cast the devil out of those bad people. Jesus didn't try to cast the devil out of any of them. He just, this is you. This is you guys. Peter didn't try to cast the devil out of Ananias or Sapphira. Paul wasn't trying to cast, he didn't tell him, now y'all, when you get together, cast the devil of perversion out of that man. No. He said, turn him over to Satan. Well, now wait a minute. <laughs> if Satan's already got a hold of the guy, how can you turn him over to him? If he's already got a demon. No, see, this is, you've got a lot of Christians out there that are messed up in their whole concept of all this demon and spiritual stuff. And they think that when Christians start acting up, well, it's a demon of this. Bull honk. It's not a demon of this and demon, it can be. But more often than not, it's a yielding to the flesh. And if you just meditate in the New Testament over and over again, you're told to mortify the flesh, not cast the demon out. Well, see, this is what we're up against. We're up against people, let me say it like this, they don't need the help of the devil. They're already corrupt in their minds. And they're acting out of that corruptness. Look over in, um, go to Amos chapter 3. See, in second, I'm, I'm going to quote, and you don't have to turn to it, but in second, um, Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And then we talk about strongholds being our imaginations. That is true. The point I want to make is the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. In other words, the weapons of our warfare are spiritual in nature. We don't have to turn to it, but Ephesians chapter 6, it talks about you know the, the armor of God, and it's all spiritual. That means when we are engaging in battle, we're supposed to be using spiritual weapons. Now that doesn't eliminate uh, proper things to do in the natural. But when we're fighting, we have to fight first and foremost from a spiritual perspective. We are, we are the the watchmen, we are the prophets. We may not be called to the ministry of a prophet, but we are the prophets. You'll see this in just a moment. In Amos chapter 3, verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he have taken nothing? Can a bird fall at a snare upon the earth where no gin is for him? Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it? Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret Unto his servants, the prophets, the lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord hath spoken, who can but prophesy? See that? God reveals his will to his prophets. Now, speaking as far as the body of Christ is concerned, you're holding in your hand his will. It has been revealed 
to us, His children, and we are to be God's prophetic voice in this world. And He says right here, God has spoken, who can but prophesy? He's not speaking specifically of those called to the ministry of a prophet. He's speaking to those who have received the Word of God. Turn over to Amos chapter 7. And look at verse 10. Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam king of Israel, saying, Amos hath conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. Now stop right there. Very briefly, here's what we have. We have, okay, I'm going to use terms we can relate to today. We have the liberal politicians standing up and saying, all those Christians need to be shut down. We can no longer put up with all this stuff. We've removed the Ten Commandments from the schools, from the courtrooms, and we've got to put an end to this. That's what this is talking about. This has nothing to do with church. This has everything to do with the political system trying to shut down the Word of God. Verse 11, For thus Amos saith, Jeroboam shall die by the sword in Israel, shall surely be led away captive out of their own land. Also Amaziah said unto Amos, O thou seer, go, flee thee away into the land of Judah, and there eat bread and prophesy there. But prophesy not again any more at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel, and it is the king's court. Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was a herdman, I was a shepherd, and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear thou the word of the Lord. Thou sayest, prophesy not against Israel, and drop not thy word against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Thy wife shall be a harlot in the city, and thy sons and thy daughters shall fall by the sword, and thy land shall be divided by line, and thou shalt die in a polluted land, and Israel shall surely go into captivity forth from this land. Well, that's not very nice. But notice this. He says, hey, I don't have the calling of a prophet, and I'm not the son of a prophet. The only thing that happened to me was God gave me His Word and said, prophesy. Prophesy. It's the same thing for us today. This principle is a truth that is still alive. We have the Word of God and we have a responsibility to do what? To prophesy or to declare the Word of God. A part of what He was declaring here was what? The judgment against the sin and the evil. Do you see this? All right, now look over in Isaiah chapter 62. Isaiah chapter 62. And then here in Isaiah chapter 62, we're going to go partway down into the the, uh, verse or the chapter, but jump down to verse 6. I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem which shall never hold their peace day or night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence, and give Him no rest, till He establish, till He make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. You see this? You know what He's saying? 
This is God saying, look, I have appointed, now I'm paraphrasing, I have appointed you to be my prophets in the land. And I'm telling you, do not keep silence. Do you make mention of the Lord? In other words, do you claim to be of the Lord? Do you claim to be one of His children? Do you make mention of the Lord? If you do, then keep not silence. How do you keep silence? Because you keep silence by not declaring the Word of God, by not operating in that area of a prophetic declaration of the Word of God against the things in the world that should not be there. And he says, now look here in verse 7, give him no rest. <laughs> and symbolically, he's saying, don't give up. Don't stop. You keep prophesying. You keep declaring. You keep speaking. You keep speaking. You keep speaking because if you do, eventually what you're going to see is God moving to establish His will in the land. And this is why it is so critical for us to take the Word of God and engage in prophetic warfare against what's happening in this nation and in this world. We can pray, God move, God move, God move. Oh, Father God, please, we ask you, keep moving. That's not wrong. But then God turns right around and he it's like He could be saying, but you are my prophetic voice in the world. You are my prophetic voice in this nation. I need you. Do not keep silence. I need you to continue to declare, continue to voice, continue to prophesy, continue to do this kind of warfare with my word. Don't keep silence from your perspective. Make yourself an irritation unto me. Don't let me have any rest. Now, granted, we know that's not the way it works. But God's trying to help us to understand a principle here. Just like when your kids, mommy, 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 yank, yank, yank on your shirt, your dress, or whatever. Mommy, 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 stop it, stop it. Do you see I'm talking to somebody? Do you see I'm busy? Do you see I'm... Okay, God says, pull on my coattail. Keep speaking. Don't give me rest. Because it's by virtue of your prophetic declarations that I am able to begin to move to establish my will. We do not give Him rest. All right, now... We're going to stop at this point. There was more I wanted to get to um, this morning, but we're going to pick it up. I'll review very briefly tonight. We're going to pick it up tonight, and then I'm going to lead you and show you how we do this prophetic warfare against what is happening in this nation right now and how we can continue to do this warfare in the future. So for the time being, everybody go ahead and stand. We are supposed to be prophesying Christians. Not foretelling the future the way some people think. But we are supposed to be engaged, again, in what I'm calling prophetic warfare against not only the demon spirits, but also against those who are seeking to overturn the standard of righteousness. If you go through in the Old Testament and you read what these prophets did, You can't find them over and over prophesying against Satan or devils. They were speaking against the people who had made a choice to turn on God. And that's what we're dealing with in this country. Yeah, I know. I understand about the the whole spiritual aspect of the spiritual warfare demons. I totally understand. But you have to keep in mind, when it comes to doing this kind of warfare, we have to speak against those people who are rising up against 
the Word of God. Well, Father, I want to thank You for this truth that You're revealing in Scripture. And Father, I pray that You prepare our hearts and minds for the way You want to deliver it tonight. And that, Father, we will see more from Your Word what it means to engage in prophetic warfare as we declare Your Word in this world. And Father, I thank You that You have made us Your prophetic voice in this world. In Jesus' name, Amen.